This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the end of September. And we're going to start with a report from Charles Darwin from September 1835. I'll conclude my description of the natural history of the Galapagos Islands by giving an account of the extreme tameness of the birds. This disposition is common to all the terrestrial species, namely to the mocking thrushes, the finches, wrens, tyrant flycatchers, the dove and the carrion buzzard. All of them often approach sufficiently near to be killed with a switch and sometimes, as I myself tried, with a cap or a hat. A gun is here almost superfluous, for with the muzzle I pushed a hawk off the branch of a tree. One day, whilst lying down, a mocking thrush alighted on the edge of a pitcher made of the shell of a tortoise which I held in my hand and began very quick, quietly to sip the water. It allowed me to lift it from the ground while seated on the vessel. I often tried, and very nearly succeeded, in catching these birds by their legs. Formerly, the birds appear to have been even tamer than at present. Cowley, in the year 1684, says that the turtle doves were so tame they would often alight upon our hats and arms so that we could take them alive, they not fearing man, until such a time as some of our company did fire at them, whereby they were rendered more shy. Dampier also in the same year says that a man in morning's walk might kill six or seven dozen of these doves. At present, although certainly very tame, they do not alight on people's arms, nor do they suffer themselves to be killed in such large numbers. It is surprising that they have not become wilder, for these islands during the last hundred and fifty years have been frequently visited by buccaneers and whalers, and the sailors wandering through the woods in search of tortoises always take cruel delight in knocking down the little birds. These birds, although now still more persecuted, do not readily become wild. In Charles Island, which had then been colonised about six years, I saw a boy sitting by a well with a switch in his hand and which he killed the doves with it and finches also as they came to drink. He had already procured a little heap of them for his dinner and he said they had constantly been in the habit of waiting by this well for the same purpose. It would appear that the birds in this archipelago, not having as yet learned that man is more dangerous animal than the tortoise or the other things on the island, disregard him in the same manner as in England shy birds such as magpies disregard the cows and horses grazing in our fields. We now have a long report written by Fanny Burney on the 30th of September 1811 or at least reporting that date. She, also known as Madame D'Arblay, first felt pain in her breast in August 1810. Cancer was diagnosed and Baron Larry, Napoleon's surgeon, agreed to perform the operation. To spare her suspense, she was given very little notice. The Monsieur d'A, or Monsieur d'Arblay, of the account is her husband and Alexander, her son. One morning, the last of September 1811, while I was in bed and Monsieur d'A was arranging some papers in his office, 
I received a letter written by Monsieur de Lally to a journalist in vindication of the honoured memory of his father against the assertions of Madame du Deffant. I read it aloud to my Alexander with tears of admiration and sympathy and then sent it by Alex to his excellent author as I had promised the preceding evening. I then dressed, aided, as usual, for many months by my maid, my right arm being condemned to total inaction. But not yet was the grand business over, when another letter was delivered to me. Another, indeed. T'was from Monsieur Larry to acquaint me that at ten o'clock he should be with me, properly accompanied, and to exhort me to rely as much upon his sensibility and his prudence as upon his dexterity and experience. He charged to secure the absence of Monsieur de Hay and told me that the young physician who would deliver me, his annonce would prepare for the operation in which he must lend his aid, and also that it had been the decision of the consultation to allow me but two hours' notice. Judge, my Esther, if I read this unmoved. Yet I had to disguise my sensations and intentions from Monsieur de Hay. Dr. Ormond, the messenger and terrible herald, was in waiting. Monsieur de A stood by my bedside. I affected to be long reading the note to gain time for forming some plan, and such was my terror of involving Monsieur de Arble in the unavailing wretchedness of witnessing that I must go through that it conquered every other and gave me the force to act as if I were directing some third person. The detail will be too wordy, as James says, but the wholesale is, I called Alex to my bedside and sent him to inform Monsieur Barbier Neuville, chef de division de bureau de Monsieur de A, that the moment was come, and I entreated him to write a summons upon urgent business for Monsieur de A, and to detain him till he should all be over. Speechless and appalled, off went Alex, and, as I have since heard, was forced to sit down and sob in executing his commission. I then, by the maid, sent word to the young Dr. Ormond that I would not, could not be ready till one o'clock, and I finished my breakfast, and not with much appetite, you will believe, forced down a crust of bread, and hurried off under various pretenses. Monsieur de A was scarcely gone when Monsieur de Bois arrived. I renewed my request for one o'clock. The rest came or were fain to consent to the delay, for I had an apartment to prepare for my banished mate. This arrangement, and those for myself, occupied me completely. Two engaged nurses were out of the way. I had a bed, curtains, and heaven knows what to prepare, but business was good for my nerves. I was obliged to quit my room to have it put in order. Dr. Ormond would not leave the house. He remained in the salon, folding linen. He had demanded four or five old and fine left-off undergarments. I glided to our book cabinet. Sundry necessary works and orders filled my time entirely till one o'clock, when all was ready. But Dr. Moreau then arrived with news that Monsieur Dubois could not attend till three. Dr. Ormond went away, and the coast was clear. This, indeed, was a dreadful interval. I had no longer anything to do. I had only to think. Two hours thus spent seemed never-ending. I would fain have written to my dearest father, to you, my Esther, to Charlotte James, Charles, Amelia Locke, but my arm prohibited me. I strolled to the salon. I saw it filled with preparations, and I recoiled. But I soon returned to what effect disguised from myself what I must so soon know. Yet the sight of the immense quantity of bandages, compresses, sponges, lint, 
made me a little sick. I walked backwards and forwards till I quieted all emotions and became, by degrees, nearly stupid, torpid without sentiment or consciousness, and thus I remained till the clock struck three. A sudden spirit of exertion then returned, I defied my poor arm, no longer worth sparing, and took my long-banished pen to write a few words to Monsieur de A and a few more for Alex, in case of a fatal result. These short billets I could only deposit safely when the cabriolet, one, two, three, four, succeeded rapidly to each other in stooping at the door. Dr. Moreau instantly entered my room to see if I were alive. He gave me a wine cordial and went to the salon. I rang for my maid and nurses, but before I could speak to them, my room without previous message would entered by seven men in black. Dr. Larry, Monsieur Dubois, Dr. Moreau, Dr. Ormond, Dr. Ribe, and a pupil of Dr. Larry and another of Monsieur Dubois. I was now awakened from my stupor, and by a sort of indignation, why so many, and without leave, but I could not utter a syllable. Monsieur Dubois acted as commander-in-chief. Dr. Larry kept out of sight. Monsieur Dubois ordered a bedstead into the middle of the room. Astonished, I turned to Dr. Larry, who had promised that an armchair would suffice. But he hung his head and would not look at me. Two old mattresses, Monsieur Dubois then demanded, and an old sheet. And I began to tremble violently, more with distaste and horror of the preparations, even than of the pain. These arrangements to his liking, he desired me to mount the bedstead. I stood suspended for a moment, whether I should not abruptly escape. I looked at the door, the windows. I felt desperate, but it was only for a moment. My reason then took the command, and my fears and feelings struggled vainly against it. I called to my maid. She was crying, and the two nurses stood transfixed at the door. Let those women all go, cried Monsieur Dubois. Disordered recovered me my voice. No, I cried, let them stay. Quel restant. This occasioned a little dispute that reanimated me. The maid, however, and one of the nurses ran off. I charged the other to approach, and she obeyed. Monsieur Dubois now tried to issue his commands en militaire, but I resisted all that were resistible. I was compelled, however, to submit to taking off my long robe de chambre, which I had meant to retain. Ah, then, how did I think of my sisters? Not one, or so dreadful an instant, at hand to protect, adjust, guard me. I regretted that I had refused Madame de Mazeneuve, Madame Chastel, no one upon whom I could reply. My departed angel, how did I think of her? How did I long, long for my Esther, my Charlotte? My distress was, I suppose, apparent, though not my wishes. For Monsieur Dubois himself now softened and spoke soothingly. Can you, I cried, feel for an operation that to you must seem so trivial? Trivial, he repeated, taking up a bit of paper which he tore unconsciously into a million of pieces. Oui, c'est peu de choses, mais, he stammered, and could not go on. No one else attempted to speak, but I was softened myself when I saw even Monsieur Dubois grow agitated, while Dr. Larry kept always aloof. Yet a glance showed me he was as pale as ashes. I knew not positively then the immediate danger, but everything convinced me danger was hovering about me, and this experiment could alone save me from its jaws. I mounted, therefore, unbidden. The bedstead and Monsieur Dubois placed me upon the mattress and spread a cambric handkerchief upon my face. It was transparent, however, 
and I saw through it that the bedstead was instantly surrounded by the seven and my nurse. I refused to be held, but when bright through the combric I saw the glitter of polished steel, I closed my eyes. I would not trust to convulsive fear the sight of the terrible incision. A silence, the most profound, ensued, which lasted for some minutes, during which, I imagine, they took their orders by signs and made their examination. Oh, what a horrible suspension. I didn't breathe. And Monsieur Dubois tried vainly to find any pulse. This pause, at length, was broken by Dr. Larry, who, in a voice of solemn melancholy, said, No one answered, at least not verbally, but this aroused me from my passively submissive state, for I feared they imagined the whole breast infected. Feared it too, justly, for again, through the combric, I heard the hand, saw the hand, of Monsieur Dubois held up, while his forefinger firstly described a straight line from top to bottom of the breast, secondly a cross and thirdly a circle, intimating that the whole was to be taken off. Excited by this idea, I started up, threw off my veil, and in answer to the demand, Qui me tiendra sa sienne? cried, C'est moi, monsieur! And I held my hand under it, and explained the nature of my sufferings, which all sprang from one point, though they darted into every part. I was heard attentively, but in utter silence, and Monsieur Dubois then replaced me as before, and as before spread my veil over my face. How vain, alas, my representation! Immediately again I saw the fatal finger describe the cross and the circle. Hopeless, then desperate, and self-given up, I closed once more my eyes, relinquishing all watching, all resistance, all interference, and sadly resolute to be wholly resigned. My dearest Esther, and all my dears to whom she communicates this doleful ditty, will rejoice to hear that this resolution once taken was firmly adhered to, in defiance of a terror that surpasses all description, and the most torturing pain. Yet, when the dreadful steel was plunged into the breast, cutting through veins, arteries, flesh, nerves, I needed no injunctions not to restrain my cries. I began a scream that lasted unintermittently during the whole time of the incision, and I almost marvel that it rings not in my ears still. So excruciating was the agony. When the wound was made and the instrument was withdrawn, the pain seemed undiminished, for the air that suddenly rushed into those delicate parts felt like a mass of minute but sharp and forked poniards that were tearing the edges of the wound, but when again I felt the instrument describing a curve cutting against the grain, if I may so say, while the flesh resisted in a manner so forcible as to oppose and tire the hand of the operator, who was forced to change from the right to the left, then indeed... I thought I must have expired. I attempted no more to open my eyes. They felt as if hermetically shut, and so firmly closed that the eyelids seemed indented into the cheeks. The instrument this second time withdrawn, I concluded the operation over. Oh no! Presently the terrible cutting was renewed, and worse than ever, to separate the bottom, the foundation of this dreadful gland from the parts to which it adhered. Again all description would be baffled, Yet again, all was not over. Dr. Larry rested but his own hand, and, oh heaven, I then felt the knife rattling against the breastbone, scraping it. This performed, 
while I yet remained in utterly speechless torture. I heard the voice of Mr. Larry, all others guarded a dead silence, in a tone nearly tragic, desire everyone present to pronounce if anything more remained to be done. The general voice was yes, but the finger of Monsieur Dubois, which I literally felt elevated over the wound, though I saw nothing, and though he touched nothing, so indescribably sensitive was the spot, pointed to some further requisition, and again began the scraping, and after this Dr. Moreau thought he discerned a peccant atom, and still, and still, Monsieur Dubois, demanded atom after atom. My dearest Esther, not for days, not for weeks, but for months, I could not speak of this terrible business without nearly again going through it. I could not think of it with impunity. I was sick. I was disordered by a single question. Even now, nine months after it's over, I have a headache from going on with this account. And this miserable account, which I began three months ago, at least, I dare not revise nor read. The recollection is still so painful. To conclude, the evil was so profound the case so delicate and the precautions necessary for preventing a return so numerous that the operation including the treatment and the dressing lasted 20 minutes, a time for suffering so acute that it was hardly supportable. However, I bore it all with the courage I could exert and never moved, nor stopped them, nor resisted, nor remonstrated, nor spoke, except once or twice during the dressings to say, Ah, monsieur, que je vous plaigne. For indeed, I was sensible to the feeling concern with which they all saw what I endured, although my speech was principally, very principally, meant for Dr. Larry. Except this, I could not utter a syllable, save when so often they recommended calling out, Avertissez-moi, monsieur, avertissez-moi. Twice, I believe, I fainted. At least, I have two total chasms in my memory of this transaction that impede my trying it together what passed. When all was done, and they lifted me up that I might be put to bed, my strength was so totally annihilated that I was obliged to be carried and could not even sustain my hands and arms, which hung as if I had been lifeless, while my face, as the nurse had told me, was utterly colourless. This removal made me open my eyes, and I then saw my good Dr. Larry, pale nearly as myself, his face streaked with blood and its expression depicting grief apprehension and almost horror. When I was in bed, my poor Monsieur Darblay, who ought to write you himself his own history of this morning, was called to me, and afterwards, our Alex. Well, after the horrors of that operation, we conclude with two short but lighter accounts. The first, undated from 1505, Benvenuto Cellini's account of a salamander. When I was about five years old, my father happened to be in a basement chamber of our house, where they'd been washing, and where a good fire of oak logs was still burning. He had a viol in his hand, and was playing and singing alone beside the fire. The weather was very cold. Happening to look into the fire, he spied in the middle of those most burning flames a little creature like a lizard, which was sporting in the core of the intensest coals. Becoming instantly aware of what the thing was, he had my sister and me called, and pointing it out to us children, gave me a great box on the ears, which caused me to howl and weep with all my might. And he pacified me good-humouredly, and spoke as follows. My dear little boy, I'm not striking you for any wrong that you've done, but only to make you remember that the lizard which you see in this fire 
is a salamander, a creature which has never been seen before by any one of whom we have credible information. So saying, he kissed me and gave me some pieces of money. And finally, from the 27th of September in 1802, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's report of child's play in the Lake District. At the time of this report, Hartley Coleridge was six and Derwent was two. The river is full and the waterfall Lodor is full and silver fillets come out of clouds and glitter in every ravine of all the mountains and the hail lies like snow upon their tops and the impetuous gusts from Borrowdale snatch the water up high and continually at the bottom of the lake it is not distinguishable from snow slanting before the wind and under this seeming snowdrift the sunshine gleams, and over all the nether half of the lake it is bright and dazzles, a cauldron of melted silver boiling. It's in very truth a sunny, misty, cloudy, dazzling, howling, omniform day, and I have been looking at a, as pretty a sight as a father's eyes could well see. Hartley and little Derwent running in the green, where the gusts blow most madly, both with their hair floating and tossing, a miniature of the agitated trees below which they were playing, inebriate both with the pleasure. Hartley whirling around for joy, Derwent eddying, half willingly, half by the force of the gust, driven backward, struggling forward, and shouting his little hymn of joy. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley, a man who clearly cannot speak French. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org.